Sometime early last spring, Mary Herman called and asked if I would give a platform in August. I said, sure, and promptly forgot about it. Then last May, my son Joshua was up here talking to you, and the commitment came back, now with considerably more urgency. Mary's request was apparently motivated, at least in part, by the West theme for the summer, which is science. Did you know that? Um, having done many things in my working life, I have now returned in retirement to my original fascination with science. For the last several years, I've been teaching biology at a local program for retirees at American University. So I guess I was an obvious candidate for the science platform. But who on earth wants a biology lecture on Sunday morning in August? What was I to do? Clearly, the first step was to bag the science theme. And in fact, something much more pressing is happening to me. I am about to turn 80 years old. Now, we've all been through milestone birthdays, and so we all have some idea of the combination of disbelief and the need to take stock that they bring up. But 80? <laughs> I have no idea how to process this bizarre occurrence. Like everyone, I have always had conceptions of what was old age. When I was young, people who were middle-aged looked old to me. I once described my father, my 50-year-old father, as elderly. He was not amused. <laughs> and my grandmother, though quite spry well into her 90s, was clearly old, but not me. So I thought that preparing a platform might provide a good opportunity to examine what it means to me to be 80. Often when I think about my life, I think of a graph. It's a little odd, but I know. So I decided to call the platform the shape of a life. I'm going to say lots more about the graph in a few minutes, but now I want to make a connection to science. As I sat at my computer musing, I noticed a book in my bookcase that I like a lot. It's called The Shape of Life. It's written by a scientist named Rudolf Raff. This was definitely too much of a coincidence. There must be a deeper meaning to it all. Thinking more about the connection brought me to sea urchins. Yes, you heard correctly, sea urchins. Have you ever seen a sea urchin? Probably not. They're pretty nondescript but they're quite fascinating to a biologist, and Rudy Raff has spent a lifetime studying them. One very interesting thing about some sea urchins is that they go through metamorphosis. If you're familiar with this, many insects do it. Insects start out as larvae, become a pupa, and then an adult. I'm talking about sea urchins only because I noticed Rudy Raff's book. The process they go through is roughly the same as with insects. So let me tell you something about sea urchins. So here's the science lecture after all. <laughs> sea urchins begin their development as all multicellular animals do. Two sex cells, the sperm and the egg, fuse to form a single cell called a zygote. The zygote divides first to two cells, then to four, then to eight, and so on. In this process, every cell that is produced has the same genome, the same set of genes. But in any particular part of the animal, at any particular moment, 
only some of these genes are active, or as biologists say colloquially, only some genes are turned on. Animals that metamorphose have a particularly interesting developmental pathway. Very early in the process of forming the larva, groups of cells are set aside that will ultimately be used to begin the transformation to the adult form. While the sea urchin is functioning as a larva, these cells lie dormant, not dividing and not taking any part in its life processes. Yet they are an integral part of the animal in that they carry the same identity as the larva. When a signal arrives for metamorphosis to begin, the tissues of the larva are broken down into their constituent molecules. The cells that were earlier set aside then begin to develop into adult structures. They use the raw materials that originally constituted the larva and the information in the genome to form an entirely new kind of organism, the adult. Why have I told you all this? Because I want to use this process of metamorphosis as a metaphor for what happened to me in my life. So now it is time to turn back to the graph. About 20 years ago, I gave a talk about my life to a group I belonged to at the World Bank. Okay, here's the graph that I drew for them. On the x-axis is, is age, and on the y-axis is success. In a little while, I'll say more about how success is defined. But right now, just imagine it is whatever you think it is, and that's good enough. OK. Very early in my life, when I was 17, I had a wild success. My science teacher in high school groomed me and others to enter the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. It's now called the Intel Paris Science Talent Search. This is a science prize given to high school students who take a test and do some sort of science project. The test is given nationwide, and the pool narrowed to several hundred kids, all of whom are guaranteed an honorable mention. Another selection process yields 40 finalists who come to Washington for the last round. In the last round, I won one of the two top prizes. It was the prize for girls. They did things like that back then. <laughs> four years ago, four years later, then four years later, after I, then I graduated from high school, and four years later, I graduated from Swarthmore College with highest honors in biology. I feel awkward telling you this history. It's not something I bring up often, but it's essential to my story. Now, in my world in those days, the most prestigious goal that I could achieve would be to become a research scientist. By age 21, it seemed I was well on my way. However, after college, something strange happened. It began when I went to graduate school at Harvard. For a bunch of reasons, my experience at Harvard was a great disappointment. But I soldiered on and eventually was awarded a PhD. Following a well-beaten track, I got a postdoctoral fellowship in a wonderful laboratory. But my professional life continued to deteriorate. Hard as it was to admit to myself, I hated working in the laboratory. I hit bottom when I was 30. That's down there. That's 
I found myself taking naps in the ladies' room during the day. Clearly, something was drastically wrong. I resigned my fellowship and sank into a depression so deep I could scarcely find the energy to walk to the end of the driveway to collect the mail. Like the sea urchin undergoing metamorphosis, I literally came apart. Of course, I didn't disintegrate physically, like the sea urchin, but my aspirations, my expectations, and standards about what constituted a valuable and productive life, in short, my very conception of myself, needed to be completely dismantled before I could reconstitute myself, just as the larval sea urchin's body dissolves until only the basic molecules, the genome, and the special groups of cells are left. Let me be a bit more specific. I had grown up believing that science was the most prestigious field, and during, doing research was the most laudable science occupation. Now I had to give that up. And worse yet, I had nothing to replace it with. At this point, I need a glass of water. <laughs> Luckily, a few months later, my first child was born. I forgot to mention that I got married somewhere in there. Okay. <laughs> right. That first child was Josh, who many of you know. Having a baby was enough of a distraction that I was able to pull myself out of my depression and to set aside the identity problems. A bit later, my daughter was born, providing me with some more breathing time. Then, when I was about 35, the slow rebuilding process began. It was still underway when I gave that talk at the World Bank 20 years ago. As the graph shows, I knew the curve was rising, but I was very pessimistic about ever reaching the height of the earlier peak I'd reached between 17 and 20. I didn't realize it at the time, but I know now, that in part my pessimism was the result of the way I was defining success. As you will have noted from what I've said about those early years, my definition of success was completely external. That is, it was based on what the rest of the world, including my family, thought of me. The inner truth about the science prize is that I knew that I really didn't deserve it. It was the result of some lucky circumstances and a glib tongue. Oh, of course I was smart but so were lots of other people, and in particular, the 39 other contestants were really smart. What I did was nothing special. Four years later, the award of highest honors was a little less of a reflection of luck and more a matter of work, but luck paid a big part there, too. But behind all the insecurity, I knew one thing. I was fascinated by genetics and evolution but I had no idea where that fascination could fit into my life. So at age 35, when the reconstruction process began, I not only gave up my notions about what constituted success, that is, being a research scientist, I also gave up my fascination with biology. The years between 35 and 65 were, in their way, remarkable and satisfying. I really did recreate myself several times. I ended my career as the ombudsman of the World Bank, quite a distance from being a laboratory scientist. I no longer felt so alienated from what I did professionally. But looking back, it's clear to me that what I did in the work world did not truly engage all of me. 
So when I retired, I began the reconstruction process all over again. One thing I did, by the way, was to join Wes, and that was a good move. Fortunately, I was free of the necessity of earning a living, thanks largely to the bank, but also to other pensions, including Social Security. Among other things, I began reading books about science. But it was almost 10 years before I actually found myself teaching biology. And immediately, I knew I had found my niche. I am, as it turns out, a good teacher. But more important, I care deeply about the ideas that permeate everything that I teach. In fact, I have become something of a missionary. I truly believe that enlightened citizens today need to understand how our biology, that is how we are put together and function as living organisms, should be playing a central role in how our society is organized. Let me take another science detour and give you a flavor of two of the topics that fascinate me and what I think you as intelligent citizens should know about them. The first has to do with genes. When I was in school, everyone thought of genes as beads on a string. I was in school a long time ago, but people still think that, actually. Uh, when the idea of a gene was invented, no one knew what they were. By my high school days, we knew that the string was a chromosome. All research in genetics and evolution treated the genes as independent entities not interacting with one another. Furthermore, most research questions were about connecting external features of organisms, what we call traits, with genes. So it was natural to use gene for language. There was a gene for this and a gene for that. This is, well, some traits don't fit the paradigm like height, but adjustments were easy to make. This gene for language, which is not my, my coinage, by the way, many people understand now about gene for language. This gene for language grabbed the public imagination and continues to be deeply entrenched in the way all of us talk about heredity. And it is basically wrong, or at least grossly misleading. The more we learn about living organisms, the more wrong it gets. It leads to formulations that are sometimes ridiculous and sometimes pernicious. Some examples. There's a gene for marital infidelity. <laughs> Read it in the newspaper. Or a gene for violent behavior, which has really led to bad suggestions about sterilizing people or giving them, changing their genes, etc. Or a gene for homosexuality, or a gene for musical talent. You get the idea. Because if you are paying any attention at all to science reporting in the media, you've heard it or read it dozens of times. Why is it wrong? Well, that's a long story, but one, of which, one which all of you could understand without any special knowledge about genetics. Take one of my courses and you'll see how straightforward it is. A second topic that fascinates me is a bit less accessible. It has to do with how novelty arises in living organisms. Novelty is uh, new structures, functions, behaviors that didn't exist before. You will remember that Darwin's famous book was called On the Origin of Species. Well, the truth is 
Darwin had practically nothing to say about this topic, since the knowledge needed to think systematically and constructively about it simply didn't exist in his time. One thing Darwin believed deeply, and what his book was at pains to demonstrate, is that new species were not the work of a designer. Everyone understood the designer was a euphemism for God, but he tread very carefully in this area. One important reason that he did is that such talk deeply offended his wife. I have to tell you, I recently read Irving Stone's wonderful novel about Darwin's life and learned that the first time Darwin told his wife about his idea about the origin of species and natural selection and all that stuff, she wrote him an agonized letter about how she would never say it again, but this was tearing her apart, that her husband was, didn't believe that, that new species, if there were new species, came from a creator, et cetera. Okay. Darwin's evidence ranged very widely. Here's one example. When he visited the Galapagos Islands, he found similar but slightly different birds, what are now called Darwin's finches on each of the islands. That is, each island had finches that were slightly different from the ones on the other islands. He also noticed that the finches on the mainland in Ecuador were also quite similar to those on the islands. He could not fathom why a creator would have bothered to make the birds on neighboring islands different, or why those 500 miles away would be created to resemble those on the islands. But he could readily explain these facts through his ideas about natural selection. Darwin believed, and scientists still believe, that differences arise by processes that can be completely explained by natural mechanisms. And of course, I agree. Darwin had little to say about how big differences, what I've called novelties, arise. He argued, and until very recently, most biologists, biologists agreed that big differences are the result of accumulating small differences. I never found this very a very satisfactory argument, and there are now many scientists who are of the same opinion. In fact, there have always been such scientists, but the power of orthodoxy has silenced them for decades. These days, many studies are shedding new light on this whole question of the origin of novelties. I find the new evidence astonishing and fascinating. It's not yet the whole story, but surely the research is moving in the right direction. With regard to evolution, I think it is important for the intelligent public to be able to differentiate between those who deny evolution because they want or need to attribute life to a deity, and those who have genuine questions about the explanations they encounter in school and in the media, which often do not seem to make sense. Even where evolution is actually taught, and that's not very many places these days, it is often taught badly, at least to my way of thinking. On a more general level, I believe that societies are going to be called upon to make increasingly nuanced and difficult decisions about the ethical consequences of biological technologies. For example, the capacity to manipulate genomes and to transfer genes between species, all of which can be done today. To participate effectively 
we need to be sophisticated in our understanding of both the ethical and biological dimensions of such issues. In my view, we as a humanist, we at WES, as a humanistic religious society, have a heavy task in front of us. Okay, enough biology, except for now an important caveat. You will have noticed that I've said very little about my family and friends. They are tremendously important to me and greatly enrich my life. In telling the full story of my life, they would have a huge role to play, but I've chosen today to focus on only one small part, that is me and biology. Now back to the shape of my life. A question may have occurred to you. During that long time between 35 and 65, did I know how it was all going to turn out? Of course not. But one thing was always obvious. Whenever I looked back, I could see that no matter what the ups and downs of the moment, where I was now was basically better than where I'd been before. But even more important, I felt less and less of a fraud. The gap between who I felt myself to be and how I appeared on the outside got smaller and smaller. There were a few occasions, like the talk at the World Bank, when I was asked to reflect on my life. And as I did so, I began to see patterns emerging. But only now am I aware of how coherent the whole story is. Not only that, as I approach the end, I can look forward as well as backward. What do I see? Well, on the downside, my body is beginning to fall apart. I guess that's inevitable. That's why I'm sitting instead of standing. But on the upside, until nature intervenes, I expect to continue to experience the deep satisfaction of doing things I love and I'm good at. So what does my life look like from the perspective of 80? Well, I've drawn a new graph. And there it is. Thank you.